Chapter 12 of The Girl from Hollywood by Edgar Rice Burroughs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe DeNoya, Somerset, New Jersey. As Gaza Delore entered the house in which she roomed, her landlady came hastily from the living room. Is that you, Miss Burke? she asked. Here's a telegram that came for you just a few minutes ago. I do hope it's not bad news. The girl took the yellow envelope and tore it open. She read the message through very quickly, and then again slowly. Her brows puckered into a little frown, as if she could not quite understand the meaning of the words she read. Your mother ill, the telegram said. Possibly not serious. Doctor thinks best you come. We'll meet you morning train. It was signed, Custer Pennington. I do hope it's not bad news, repeated the landlady. My mother is ill. They have sent for me, said the girl. I wonder if you'll be good enough to call up the SP and ask the first train I can get that stops at Ganado, while I run upstairs and pack my bag. You poor little dear, exclaimed the landlady. I'm so sorry. I'll call right away. Then I'll come up and help you. A few minutes later she came up to say that the first train left at nine o'clock in the morning. She offered to help pack, but the girl said there was nothing that she could not do herself. I must go out first for a few minutes, Gaza told her. Then I will come back and finish packing the few things that it will be necessary to take. When the landlady had left, the girl stood staring dully at the black traveling bag that she had brought from the closet and placed on her bed. But she did not see the bag or the few pieces of lingerie that she had taken from her dresser drawers. She saw only the sweet face of her mother, and the dear smile that had always shown there to soothe each childish trouble, the smile that had lighted the girl's dark days, even after she had left home. For a long time she stood there thinking, trying to realize what it would mean to her if the worst should come. It could make no difference, she realized, except that it might perhaps save her mother from a still greater sorrow. It was the girl who was dead, though her mother did not guess it. She had been dead for many months. This hollow, shaking husk was not Shannon Burke. It was not the thing that her mother had loved. It was almost a sacrilege to take it up there into the clean country and flaunt it in the face of so sacred a thing as mother love. The girl stepped quickly to her writing desk and, drawing a key from her vanity case, unlocked it. She took from it a case containing a hypodermic syringe and a few small files. Then she crossed the hall to the bathroom. When she came back she looked rested and less nervous. She returned the things to the desk, locked it, and ran downstairs. I'll be back in a few minutes, she called to the landlady. I shall have to arrange a few things tonight with a friend. She went directly to the Vista del Paso bungalow. Crumb was surprised, not a little startled as he heard her key in the door. He had a sudden vision of Alan returning, and he went white. But when he saw who it was, he was no less surprised, for the girl had never before returned after leaving for the night. My gracious, he exclaimed. Look who's here. She did not return his smile. I found a telegram at home, she said, that necessitates my going away for a few days. I came over to tell you, and to get a little snow to last me until I come back. He looked at her through narrowed, suspicious lids. You're going to quit me, he cried accusingly. That's why you went out with Alan. You can't get away with it. I'll never let you go. Do you hear me? I'll never let you go. Don't be a fool, Wilson, she replied. My mother is ill, and I've been sent for. Your mother? You never told me you had a mother. But I have, but I don't care to talk about her to you. She needs me, and I am going. He was still suspicious. Are you telling me the truth? Will you come back? You know I'll come back, she said. I shall have to, she added with a weary sigh. Yes, you'll have to. You can't get along without it. You'll come back all right. I'll see to that. What do you mean, she asked. How much snow you got home, he demanded. You know I keep scarcely any there. I forgot my case today, left it at my desk, so I have a little there. Couple of shots, maybe. Very well, he said. I'll give you enough to last a week, then you'll have to come home. You say you'll give me enough to last a week? The girl repeated questioningly. 
I'll take what I want. It's as much mine as yours. But you don't get any more than I'm going to give you. I won't have you gone more than a week. I can't live without you, don't you understand? I believe you have a wooden heart, or none at all. Oh, she said, yawning, you can get some other poor fool to peddle it for you if I don't come back. But I'm coming, never fear. You're as bad as the snow. I hate you both, but I can't live without either of you. I don't feel like quarreling, Wilson. Give me the stuff. Enough to last a week, for I'll be home before that. He went to the bathroom and made a little package up for her. Here, he said, returning to the living room, that ought to last you a week. She took it and slipped it into her case. Well, goodbye, she said, turning toward the door. Aren't you going to kiss me goodbye, he asked. Have I ever kissed you since I learned you had a wife, she asked. No, he admitted, but you might kiss me goodbye now, when you're going away for a whole week. Nothing doing, Wilson, she said with a negative shake of her head. I'd as life kiss Gilla monster. He made a wry face. You're sure candid, he said. She shrugged her shoulders in a gesture of indifference and moved toward the door. I can't make you out, Gaza, he said. I used to think you loved me, and the Lord knows I certainly love you. You're the only woman I ever really loved. A year ago I believe you would have married me, but now you won't even let me kiss you. Sometimes I think there is someone else. If I thought you loved another man, I'd... I'd... No, you wouldn't. You were going to say that you'd kill me, but you wouldn't. You haven't the nerve of a rabbit. You needn't worry. There isn't any other man, and there never will be. After knowing you, I could never respect any man, much less love one of them. You're all alike. Rotten. Let me tell you something. I never did love you. I liked you at first before I knew the hideous thing that you had done to me. I would have married you, and I would have made you a good wife, too. You know that. I wish I could believe that you do love me. I know of nothing, Wilson, that would give me more pleasure than to know that you love me madly. But, of course, you're not capable of loving anything madly except yourself. I do love you, Gaza, he said seriously. I love you so that I would rather die than live without you. She cocked her head on one side and eyed him quizzically. I hope you do, she told him, for if it's the truth, I can repay you some measure of the suffering you have caused me. I can be around where you can never get a chance to forget me, or to forget the fact that you want me, but you can never have me. You'll see me every day, and every day you will suffer vain regrets from the happiness that might have been yours if you had been a decent, honorable man. But you are not decent. You are not honorable. You're not even a man. He tried to laugh derisively, but she saw the slow red creep to his face and knew that she had scored. I hope you'll feel better when you come back from your mother's, he said. You haven't been very good company lately. Oh, by the way, where'd you say you were going? I didn't say, she replied. Won't you give me your address, he demanded. No. But suppose something happens. Suppose I want to get a word to you, Crum insisted. You'll have to wait until I get back, she told him. I don't see why you can't tell me where you're going, he grumbled. Because there is a part of my life that you and your sort have never entered, she replied. I would his life taking a physical leper to my mother as a moral one. I cannot even discuss her with you without a feeling that I have besmirched her. On her face was an expression of unspeakable disgust as she passed through the doorway of the bungalow and closed the door behind her. Wilson Crumb simulated a shudder. I sure was a damn fool, he mused. Gaza would have made the greatest emotional actress the screen has ever known, if I'd given her a chance. I guessed her wrong, and played her wrong. She's not like any woman I ever saw before. I should have made her a great success and won her gratitude. That's the way I ought to have played her. Oh well, what's the difference? She'll come back. He rose and went to the bathroom, snuffed half a grain of cocaine, and then collected all the narcotics hidden there and every vestige of contributory evidence of their use by the inmates of the bungalow. 
Dragging a small table into the bathroom closet, he mounted and opened a trap leading to the airspace between the ceiling and the roof. Into this he clambered, carrying the drugs with him. They were wrapped in a long, thin package to which a light, strong cord was attached. With this cord he lowered the package into the space between the sheathing and the inner wall, fastening the end of the cord to a nail driven into one of the studs at arm's length below the wall plate. There, he thought as he clambered back into the closet, it'll take some dick to uncover that junk. Hidden between plaster and sheathing of this little bungalow was a fortune in narcotics. Only a small fraction of their stock and the two pounds kept in the bathroom, and Crum had now removed that, in case Allen should guess that he had been betrayed by his confederate, and directed the police to the bungalow, or the police themselves should trace his call and make an investigation of their own account. He realized he was taking a great risk, but a stratagem had saved him from the deadly menace of Allen's vengeance, at least for the present. The fact that there must ultimately be an accounting with the man, he put out of his mind. It would be time enough to meet that contingency when it rose. As a matter of fact, the police came to the bungalow that very evening, but through no clue obtained from Allen, who, while he had suspicions that were tantamount to conviction, chose to await the time when he might wreak his revenge in his own way. The desk sergeant had traced the call to Crumb, and after the arrest had been made a couple of detective sergeants called upon him. They were quiet, pleasant-spoken men, with an ingratiating way they might have deceived the possessor of a less suspicious brain than Crumb's. The lieutenant sent us over to thank you for that tip, said the spokesman. We got him all right, with the junk on him. Not for nothing was Wilson Crumb a talented actor. None there was who could have better registered polite and uninterested in comprehension. I'm afraid, he said, that I don't quite get you. What tip? What are you talking about? You called to the station, Mr. Crumb. We had central traced the call. There's no use. Crumb interrupted him with a gesture. He didn't want the officer to go so far as it might embarrass him to retract. Ah, he exclaimed, a light of understanding illuminating his face. I believe I have it. What was the message? I think I can explain. We think you can too, agreed the sergeant, seeing you phoned the message. No, but I didn't, said Crumb, although I guess it might have come from over my phone all right. I'll tell you what I know about it. A car drove up a little while ago after dinner, and a man came to the door. He was a stranger. He asked if I had a phone and if he could use it. He said he wanted to phone an important and confidential message to his wife. He emphasized the confidential, and there was nothing for me to do but go to the other room until he was through. He was only a minute or two talking, and then he called me. He wanted to pay for the use of the phone. I didn't hear what he said over the phone, but I guess that explains the matter. I'll be careful next time a strangers want to use my phone. I would, said the sergeant dryly. Would you know him if you saw him again? I sure would, said Crumb. They rose to go. Nice little place you have here, remarked one of them, looking around. Yes, said Crumb. It is very comfortable. Wouldn't you like to look it over? No, replied the officer. Not now. Maybe some other time. Crumb grimmed after he had closed the door behind them. I wonder, he mused, if that was a threat or a prophecy. A week later, Slick Allen was sentenced to a year in county jail for having morphine in his possession. End of chapter 12